the only identity that people associated with the Red Bulls was failure and big name stars in a big market. and football. My name is Sebastian Alvarado and I'm the host of this long-form interview style podcast where each week I sit down with some of the most interesting and influential people involved in the game. They range from players to club and league executives to corporate brand directors to media profiles, agents and thought leaders. The purpose of these conversations is to dig deep and get to know the person behind the title and to learn about their work, everyday routines, life experiences and to hear their side of the story. In this episode, I sit down with one of the best, one of the coolest, and one of the most influential players in the MLS, Dax McCarty, the captain of the New York Red Bulls. There are few players in the past few years who have been as associated with the team and personified the character of a team as much as Dax has. We dig into the details of the Red Bulls playing style, which ideally is a combination of entertaining fans while still winning games. Dax takes us through his Florida upbringing and the contrast with the New York City life he lives today, the players that inspire him, how to live up to the role he inherited from Thierry Henry, what he's learned from him, and how he applies that as the captain of a team that's always been associated with high expectations, as well as his thoughts on the national team. All that and much more. So without further ado, let's dive straight into it. Dex, welcome. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and welcome to the Coffee and Football Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to start. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, man. Since the theme is Coffee and Football, I always obviously have to ask the question, do you drink coffee? <laughs> it's funny. I, I never used to drink coffee when I was younger, but ever since I moved to New York, that's kind of the thing now. So I'm, I'm, I'm slowly starting to get on the train if if i do get a coffee which i do occasionally it'll be probably like some sort of vanilla latte something like that some something easy at least in new york it looks right if you walk around with a that's cup. what i'm saying if you walk around with like a co- coffee cup starbucks cup you know whatever you can fit in and but it's good if i go to starbucks and get a hot chocolate it still looks like coffee right this is your second season as the team captain what things can you improve on and how do you go about that it's a great question. <laughs> I'll I'll start by saying that I think uh, it's not easy to to be a captain, and I think that it's it's only for certain guys with certain types of attributes, and and guys that I've looked at kind of tried to model myself as a captain after guys like like Steven Gerrard when he was at Liverpool, guys like Roy Keane when he was at Man United. You know these types of players are are unbelievable not just role models but they're unbelievable players but they're unbelievable leaders and it's not easy to be a leader it's not easy to be a good leader because not only do you have to uh represent yourself but you have to represent the team and and you're kind of the guy that's looked at as uh you know the uh i guess you could say the focal point of of how your team is going to act and uh how you're going to be so i've grown up a lot in my uh in my time in mls you know, when I first got traded to DC United, I was made captain right away. And I think it was probably a little bit too much for me, a little too soon. I think I was like 23 years old at the time. Why did they make you the captain? 
Yeah, I, I talked to Ben Olsen about it, and, and you know he had seen me play a lot in Dallas, and he could tell that I was a vocal guy on the field. I certainly, I certainly am an opinionated guy. Uh, I don't shy away from you know tough questions or you know tough games. Uh, I think that I'm the guy that no matter if I have a great game or a horrible game, I can sit, I can stand there and take whatever praise or criticism can come my way. But I had a conversation with Ben about it, and he said, you know, I. I want you to be looked at as a leader on this team. And he, at that time, uh, DC was going through a bit of a transition. There were a lot of, a lot of older veteran players, but a lot of young guys as well. Not too many guys in between. And I was obviously considered a younger player, but I had a lot of experience in MLS. Um, and he said, look, I, I can't really tell you who all is going to be on the field for us. He's like, you're one guy that I can sit there and say, I know you'll be on the field for us as long as you're healthy. So. You know, with the way that I've seen you play and, and the attitude that you do have, I, I think you'll make for a good captain. And, you know, I'm, I'm a kid, but I also have pride. And I said, look, I would love that job and that role. I, you know, I take a lot of pride in that. And I think if I'm being real honest with myself, it actually was a detriment to me because I took that as, okay, you need to focus on everyone else around the team and making sure guys are doing the right things off the field. You have to make sure you know, guys are doing their jobs on the field. And that actually took away from my performance. And I don't think I played my best when I was in DC. Uh, I certainly don't think that I gave a good account of myself on the field. And that's a problem because as a captain, you're looked at to just not just lead with your mouth. I mean, words and lip service, I mean, it means nothing if you're not a performer and if you don't go on the field and back that up. So I wasn't playing my best and, and it got to me and it frustrated me. And you know, I, I can't really blame DC for trading me for, you know, to try to get a guy that was ended up being the league MVP and one of the greatest players in MLS history. In a way, it's, and that it's, was Dwayne de, de Rosario. Dwayne de Rosario. In a way, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to be traded. You're basically being told that, look, you're not good enough here and, and we're going to get rid of you. And, but at the same time, it's, it's in a strange, convoluted way. It's, it's flattering, uh, that, you know, New York, you know, thought highly enough of me to, to trade a guy of that caliber. But I've learned a lot since then, and, and I learned a lot from Thierry Henry about how to be a captain and how to carry yourself. And what are some some specific things? Yeah, that you would take his from him? his his mentality his mentality was was very aggressive at times, and and you can tell you could tell how much he wanted to win. And it didn't matter where he was; it didn't matter if it was on the basketball court, if it was on the training field. It didn't matter if it was an argument in the lunchroom. Uh, he just, he, he had this unsatiable desire to win. I mean, it was just crazy. I'd never been around a guy who cared so much about winning. And I think his mantra was kind of, if you, if you don't want to win, what's the point of doing something, you know, and, and what's the point of playing? And so I kind of took that and said, you know, wow, your career as a player, I mean, obviously, you know, if you have a long career and you make some good money from it, I mean, that's all cool, but as a player, I think you always kind of want to be measured on your ability to win and what you've won. And Thierry is a guy that's won literally everything there is to win uh, that he's been a part of. And so, uh, obviously, MLS Cup was uh, the one thing that eluded him. But, you know, when you win the World Cup and the Champions League and the Premier League, and I think that, you know, you can let an MLS Cup slide. But I learned a lot from him. He was a guy that uh, that, that that taught me every time I step on the field, I need to try you know, to evolve and to try to make sure that you're not only leading with your act, with your words, but with your actions as well. So that's what I've tried to do. Um, it's, it's hard. 
it's hard for me because I kind of wear my emotions on my sleeve. And sometimes I don't always have the best way of approaching a situation. And so that's one thing I'm trying to get better at and trying to learn how to handle each situation. Each player is unique and individual and it's kind of your job to, to gauge the pulse of the team and how the team is feeling on a certain day or how the, you know, how certain players are feeling. Your big time players, are they in a bad mood? Are they in a good mood? Uh, did they have a bad training session? Or did they have a bad game? What can I say to them to get them confidence back? I mean, these are all little things that go into it. Now, with all this being said, I will say that my job as captain, it's not, uh, I don't take sole responsibility for it. We have an unbelievable group of guys and a lot of leaders. Um, guys that helped me in a tremendous way. Sasha Kleschen, Luis Robles, Bradley Wright Phillips, Lloyd Sam. These are all guys that I look to to when I don't have all the answers for advice and for their opinion because I'm not the type of guy that's that's a dictator and I'm going to say, well, I'm the captain and it has to be like this or this or this and that's not the way our team works. You know, Jesse is not the type of coach that's going to say, well, these are my rules. This is how we're going to do things. He comes and gets the players' opinions and I think that's why when you look at our team, we just have a bunch of guys that love playing soccer and have a ton of respect for each other. And we try to treat each other like family because when you, uh, when you treat each other like family, that means you want to play that much harder for the guy on the field next to you. So I'm trying to evolve as a captain, but, uh, mainly I just think it's, it's my play on the field that'll try to do the speaking for itself. During season, what's a typical day for you? Take me through the, the first 90 minutes from the moment you wake up. All right, yeah, they're they're different. I mean, I live in the city. I live in Manhattan and uh, West Village. I love it. Uh, I've been there for about four years now, five years. Um, it, the pulse of the city is incredible. It's certainly an experience that when I move on and have kids and get to tell them, "Hey, I lived in New York City," I can tell them it's one of the best times I've ever had in my life. Just because. So you wouldn't stay in New York City and and uh, have uh, your have your kids? Here. I think when my career is over, my kids aren't going to be able to grow up in New York City. Unfortunately, that's my fiance would never let that slide. She we're we're both from Florida and we uh, we grew up close to beaches and close to uh, yards, uh, grass, a <laughs> uh, lot of space. Uh, you know, New York is so interesting, man, and it's it's such a cool experience to be able to say that I lived here, but. It's definitely not going to be the case when I'm done playing. Um, anyways, yeah, so I've lived here for four or five years now. A typical, a typical day is just, I, I wake up probably a couple hours before training. Oh, depends. Sometimes I'll take a shower. Sometimes I'll roll out of bed and throw on some sweatpants and, and walk out the door. Get a nice commute out to East Hanover where our training facility is. How do you get um, out there? I drive. Uh, I drive. And so it's funny because sometimes I'll, For those who don't know, uh, there's this crazy new concept that New York is, is very expensive. Uh, literally everything you do costs money. And so when you want to come into the city, you got to pay a toll. When you want to park in a garage, you got to pay what feels like a mortgage payment. When you got to, you know, you just got to do all these things and it just the money adds up. So what I decided to do is since I live so close to the path train and the path train is unbelievably convenient to where I live, uh, I decided to get a garage in Hoboken, which is super close and about three times cheaper than, than a garage would be in, in New York City. Uh, and so sometimes what I'll do is if I if I don't have anything going on in the city after training, um, I'll park in Hoboken. And then so I'll, I'll, when I wake up, I catch the PATH train uh, over to Hoboken. I'll drive out to training. Um, drive usually takes me about 45 minutes to an hour depending on traffic. I've gotten used to it though, so it's like nothing these days. Have training. Sometimes I'll lift weights. Sometimes I'll get treatment. 
Um, we have we have breakfast and lunch provided for us out there, which is awesome. Red Bull takes such great care of us <clears throat> in terms of making sure we eat right and making sure we get good meals on us after training. And then typically, uh, you know, it just depends on what I have going on that day. You never know if you have an appearance, if you have a, an event, if you have friends in the, in the city that you need to meet up with. Um, it all depends. Sometimes you go home and take a nap. Sometimes you had a stressful day, a tough session, whatever it may be. Um, more times than not, I'll, I'll get home and, and we'll have to entertain my, uh, my French bulldog that I have. That thing needs constant attention. So go to the dog park, take it for a walk. Uh, in the summer, it's amazing. Uh, go to, you know, Washington Square Park, maybe go to Central Park, uh, walk over to East Village. I mean, there's just, uh, so many fun things to do in the summer is, is amazing because you always want to be outside. In the winter, I hibernate, man. I don't, I don't like to go out too much. I'm a Florida guy. I, I like the warm weather a lot more than I like the cold weather. So that's a typical practice day. On a game day, it's even lazier. <laughs> it's just like the laziest day you could ever imagine. Um, if it's a night game, I'll sleep in a little bit. I'll wake up. I'll make breakfast. Typically, we play on Saturday or Sunday, so it's nice because you get to watch the Premier League or Spain or Spanish League or German League. The cool thing about being involved in soccer right now in the U.S. is that I mean, the, the TV rights deals and all this stuff happening is is unbelievable. I mean, you see how much the game is starting to mean to people in the U.S. and it's cool to see. So I'll be a guy that just watches soccer almost all day. Um, I'll go for a walk, stretch out a little bit, make sure my legs aren't just doing nothing. You know, wake the body up a little bit. Maybe I'll get a coffee, you know, maybe not. Just depends on, on my mood, how I'm feeling. Take the dog for a walk, go back, uh, have a little snack, maybe take a nap, wake up, take a shower, eat pregame meal. Depends. Sometimes I'll make it. Sometimes I'll order it from one of my favorite restaurants. What's a good spot for that? Some of my favorite restaurants around me mainly do Italian food. Place called Frankie's, Spuntino place called Barbudo, a lot of different places, man, a lot of different places that I like, but only a couple that I'll, I'll go for my pregame meal. You know, I like a, I like a routine and I like something the same way, but sometimes you're in the mood for something, you got to go for it. So eat pregame meal, then I'll drive out to the stadium. I'll have, uh, it's not too far. Usually on the weekends, it's not too bad. Um, getting out to the Red Bull Arena is only about 25, 30 minutes. I'll get there two hours before the game. Typically you get your treatment done, you relax. Um, Go over tactics for the game, play the game more times than not, win the game. You know, these past couple of years, Red Bull Arena, we really want to make it a fortress, and I think that's what we've done. Uh, hopefully be in a good mood after the game, and then uh, afterward I'll go home. Depends on if, if my fiancé brings some friends. I'll have to be a massive carpool because the only way they get out is by the path train, which is super nice. And then after that, you know, it just depends. Uh I'm not the type of player that's really hungry right after the game. They provide us food and I'll have a shake typically, but then a couple hours after, that's the best part about living in New York, honestly, is that after games, I, I don't get home till 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Most places, no restaurants would be open, but New York, things are just starting to get, you know, get busy. Uh, so I'll go have a nice meal, probably with some friends, sometimes go to Tao and, and down in the uh, meatpacking district that has great food and good vibe, good atmosphere. And then that'll typically be the, the day of the game. Go home and try to get a good night's sleep because then you got to get do, wake up early and go do a regeneration the next day, which typically doesn't involve too much, but you go through the drive out there again. You don't want to be too tired. So that's typical typical routine for me. You mentioned earlier here, before we started the recording, that the Red Bulls have a pretty complicated playing system. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, it's... Like I said, this, these ideas aren't really new ideas. Uh, I would say that 
uh, our system of play is one that's complicated just solely based on the fact that it's different. And you you haven't typically seen the way that we play in MLS. And you've seen a version of it with Sporting Kansas City. It's all predicated on high pressure. And sort of, you know, you've seen like Borussia Dortmund has played similar similarly with, with their tactics. More along the lines of what people would probably see more of in the English Premier League, Tottenham Hotspur with Pochettino. They do something similar. So I think, you know, it started with Jesse being the right guy for, for the job, bringing him in and having his vision align with what Red Bull wanted, which is a, a team that plays fast and a team that plays at a very high tempo and a team that, that plays fast and, and pressures the opponent all over the field. And so in order to do that, you need to have 11 guys that are on the same page and know exactly where to be in almost every situation on the field, which, as you can imagine, there's a lot of them. So if one guy doesn't do his job or if one guy is a little bit late uh, to step up and pressure, you know, all of it falls apart. So that's why it's hard to do, man. And that's why it's complicated, like I've said, and that's why it's not easy. And I think we had our growing pains uh, last year. We certainly had to get used to it. I mean, in preseason, it was tough. Uh, a lot of the older guys on our team, we weren't really sure if this could be possible and if this could work. I mean, if you play in a, a country like England, uh, your longest trip is probably a two-hour train ride, maybe. You know, you might have to fly across, you know, to Cardiff or whatever. Uh, it's an hour flight, whatever it is. In MLS, I mean, you have huge distances that you travel. Five, six-hour flights, time zone changes. And, and on top of that, the the climate is so different everywhere you go so we had a, we had a, we had our doubts I'll, I'll put it that way and even through our doubts jesse stuck firm he said guys trust me once we get our base of fitness down once we all get on the same page this system that we play is actually going to enable us to do less running uh than you typically think in a team that plays a high pressure system because the it's all predicated on winning the ball high up the field and having a shorter distance to attack the goal. And that's the one thing that uh, that we certainly have caught on and done well with. Obviously, it's working. Because not, not only in terms of the defensively and putting the high pressure, but the way you guys were playing last year was pretty impressive because you looked even much better while, once you had the ball. Even. Of course. And I think I think part of it is... We're in this business because we love this game. And obviously, we've been blessed with certain skills that not many people, you know, can say that not everyone can just walk out on a field and be able to do the things that, you know, professional soccer players do. And on top of that, you know, professional athletes in general. So it's, it's obviously a blessing. But at the same time, I mean, we're in this business for entertainment and there's no other way around it. I mean, you have people that pay their hard earned money. Uh, that come and, and watch you play and they, they bleed for your team. They cry for your team. They love your team like, like family. And I think that they deserve to be entertained in a way. And so for me, there's all different types of ways you can entertain it. You know, your fan base, right? If you score a lot of goals, if you have a great defense and you don't concede many goals, um, if you have interesting players, uh, and, and also another way is the way that you play and you want your fans to be excited when they come and, and watch a game. And so for so many years that I've been in New York, I mean, we've had guys like Thierry Henry, you know, Juan Pablo Angel, uh, Kenny Cooper. I mean, guys that just people pay to sc see score goals and, and entertain. And so without any of those big marquee names, you know, you need to find other ways to be able to do it. 
Now, the main side of it is winning. I mean, that's what matters most to every fan and every player. But there's also an entertainment factor. And so I think with high pressure, you see, you don't see a slow game. And our whole philosophy and motto is we want to put teams in fast games. We want to make sure that teams can't play at our speed, the speed that we want to play at. And we're always evolving and growing and trying to get better at that. But at the end of the day, we scored the most goals in the league last year and we won the supporter shield. So it's definitely something that you can hang your hat on and say, all right, well, we think this can work. But at the same time, this year, it's going to be even harder because we're going to have a target on our back. What's interesting, what I think looking from from the outside is that almost for the first time, you have a true identity in a way. And people are actually, and people in soccer, they're actually talking about the way you're playing. They're not necessarily focusing on the big stars or, and people seem to really appreciate that, that the Red Bulls have that. And it's very distinct and it's, few teams in the MLS that you can point to and say, okay, that's the way that team plays. Exactly. And that, that goes back to, uh, you know, some of the points that I made earlier with, with making sure that everyone's on the same page uh, and that fans want to see. I mean, we do have an identity. And I think for so many years in the past, the only identity that people associated with the Red Bulls was failure and big name stars in a big market. And that's something that we wanted to change. I mean, you have to give Ali Curtis and Jesse Marsh and the rest of their coaching staff a lot of credit. I mean, they had a vision and they wanted to see it fulfilled. And the first year, I don't think anyone could have predicted how well it did go. But I think for us, we still look at the season as a little bit of a disappointment because we didn't finish what could have been a magical season with an MLS Cup. And sure, we won the Supporter Shield, and that's something that we're all proud of, and that's a trophy to put in the trophy case. But at the same time, you don't get a ring for a Supporter Shield. And that's uh, just the business that we're in. That's the MLS, you know, and and you want to be able to, at the end of the year, say, hey, we were the last team standing, and we weren't. It was Portland. So that's something that we're... uh, you know, we have in the back of our minds, uh, we're proud of how 2015 went and the way that our team has an identity. We have a, a mantra. We don't just try to go out and buy the best players we have available to us and spend millions and millions of dollars. We, we want to invest in our academy. We want our kids to be uh, some of the best players in the world. I mean, it's a bold statement, but if you look at all the clubs in MLS and you look at what you would ideally want from your, your MLS team, it's you would ideally want to field a team full of homegrown players, right? See them be successful because I think that's the ultimate measure of how successful a team's academy is. And I think the Red Bulls, and you could probably throw FC Dallas in there, are at the forefront of of giving young guys a chance and giving young players a chance. So it's exciting to be a part of. Everyone knows that Matt Miazga just got bought by Chelsea. And uh, I just think it goes back to our academy and the belief that we have in in this area to be able to develop the best players in the world. Um, Obviously, We're still looking for players that can be considered world-class, but certainly we're getting better at that. And so we have a different philosophy these days. Uh, I'm certainly happy to be part of it. It's exciting times here at Red Bull, but when you step on the field, you have to back that up. You have to keep winning. There again, it's another one. McCarty with the pair. El Capitan with a second of the day. And the Red Bulls have gone up four to nothing. I want to ask a little bit about your upbringing and start. Where did you grow up? And in order to get to know you more personally, what do I need to know about that place? <laughs> I grew up in uh, a small town in Florida called Winter Park, right outside Orlando. May as well be Orlando, um, Central Florida. 
<sighs> well, what you don't, what you need to know about it, um, you know, it's it's a pretty. I don't know if you've ever heard of Disney Disney World or Epcot or Magic Kingdom. Yeah, that's uh, it's a pretty big <laughs> tourist destination, and uh, contrary to maybe popular belief, if you grow up there, you really don't like going that much. <laughs> You go once or twice and people think you go all the time. That's just not true, man. This doesn't happen. For me, my group of friends, we would just, we would much rather go. And it's uh, where I lived is about a 45 minute drive to the beach. And so we would much rather go out and spend a day on the beach, you know, hang out, go surfing, boogie boarding, whatever it was, come home, be able to spend a full day out there, come back home and pass out. I'm, I'm a little fair skinned, as you can imagine. So the, uh, the sunscreen, application is is constant and heavy but yeah man it, it was a it was a awesome upbringing childhood i mean i have a great family my parents are very supportive big 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 soccer fans both of them were athletes uh, my mom was a very good big tennis player growing up in high school uh, true story she actually lost to uh martina navratilova oh wow uh, or, or chris everett one of the one of those legends i, I always get them confused i think it might have been chris everett in the, in the high school state championship. Um, so that's kind of her, you know, big claim to, to fame down in Florida. And then my dad, uh, my mom is from Florida. My dad's from Missouri, small town in Missouri, but he's, uh, he's where the athletic genes. Well, my mom obviously is an athlete. They both gave me the athletic genes, but my dad was like a super athlete. He was like the point guard of the basketball team, the quarterback of the football team, and like the pitcher on the baseball team. But it is a small town, so I'm not going to give him too much credit here. Yeah, but he, he, Growing up, he always regretted it. He he was, you know, soccer wasn't a big back then and no one played soccer. You know, it was, you were weird. You're kind of still weird if you play soccer now, but you were really, really weird if you played soccer back in those days. And so he never did. And once he got older and my brother and I started to get into soccer, he always was like, man, you guys are so lucky. He's like, I wish I would have played soccer growing up. He's okay. like, I was, he's like, I was really good at baseball and I hated how much I had to stand around and do nothing. <laughs> Basically. Sorry, no offense, baseball. That's my dad's words, not mine. But yeah, they uh, they were very supportive. Drove us all around the southeast of the United States, taking us to soccer tournaments and whatnot. And by we, I mean my brother. My brother's uh, 17 months younger than me. Was a very good soccer player himself. Played for the LA Galaxy for one season. Got a ring and yeah. then uh, got injured and decided I was going to call it a day. So 11... 10 seasons, no rings for me. Uh, one season, one ring for my brother, and then he, uh, he called it a day. So, yeah, we were close-knit family. My dad's side of the family still lives in Missouri. My mom's side of the family is in Florida. So, we're close. Uh, I talk to them all the time. It's awesome to spend preseason down in Orlando because I get to see them a lot. Typically, during the year, you don't really get many chances to see them, but they're like my biggest fans, man. doesn't matter if I have the worst game in the world. My mom always thinks I play great. You know, it's funny how that works. <laughs> but yeah, they uh, they always try to come up to New York for a game or two. And they're they're good luck charms, man. I, I think they've, the past two years, every game they've come to, we've won. So, except for, I don't know, maybe one, one we lost. Yeah. I think we got spanked by Orlando last year, 5-2 at home. And they were there for that one, so... I think they're uh, they're gonna have to recalibrate their uh, juju or their magic dust or whatever it is. So, yeah, really good upbringing. Um, who were you in school? Who was I? I was uh, I was I was the athletic kid who uh, his teachers hated. I wasn't so much. I wasn't like a. I wasn't really a pest. I was just kind of an obnoxious little brat type of kid, man. But uh, 
I was always, I was, I was kind of the class clown, but you know, I was really good at soccer. Everyone just knew me as like a really good soccer player. And uh, my teacher was that I, just I, like natural talent that you that you kind of had, or you know, it's hard. It's hard talking about it. You would love to have like a high school coach talk about it, but I, I was. I, I was an athletic kid growing up. I, I played basketball and tennis as my other main sports and then soccer. And, and obviously, I I was pretty good at, at basketball and tennis. Basketball kind of figured at a young age I was never going to be 6'8", 200 pounds. So I figured I was probably not going to pursue that too well. But I really liked basketball. I still do. I was a point guard and I loved making three-pointers and doing all that stuff. And uh, in tennis, I was pretty good at tennis as well. But Soccer, I was always just better. I mean, it was just, it came, it came natural to me. I was a skinny kid and a really fit kid and I love to run. And it's funny how that works when you get older, you hate to run. But when you're a young man, you just want to run. And, and it just came natural to me. I mean, back when I was younger, I was, uh, I was a striker and I was a, I was a goal scorer, man. I, I, I was a goal scorer extraordinaire and I just loved the feeling after scoring goals and, and I, I tried my best to score as many as I could, and I guess I was a little bit of a selfish player back then. But I was, you know, Florida, especially Central Florida. I mean, Miami had a ton of talented, talented players, um, but Central Florida. I mean, there wasn't wasn't too much competition, and so I was I was just head and shoulders better than most kids that I played against. And honestly, I mean, it's it's sort of crazy to think like you know. Could I have been a better player if I was in an academy setup like the Red Bulls have or whatever it may be? You know, back in those days, it was club soccer. I mean, I was training two times a week with uh, with coaches that coached me that actually played at the local college. Um, that was like five minutes from my parents' house. And those were like 20, 20 21-year-old English guys that came over from England and just kind of did this for extra money, you know. And we trained, we trained twice a week on a football field. You know, and then we had to share the field with a couple other soccer teams. And it was just, God, I mean, I look at what some of these kids have now at their disposal and it's just crazy. It's just night and day how different it is. And so, yeah, I mean, I had natural ability, but I worked hard. I, I loved the game. And so my dad, my dad, uh, he, he took uh, three pieces of plywood and he nailed them together and he, and he went and bought a net from Home Depot or somewhere and he, he made a soccer goal and he put it out in the backyard. And my brother and I played on that thing every night. And we just practiced all the time. And then I, I did the whole ODP thing. That was the main way of identifying players back when I was coming up. And I did the ODP thing and I made it all the way to like, what's the Olympic development program? Um, it was, it was kind of just, you had to pay to try out and it's coaches, you know, they would, they would try to, they would determine if you, if they liked you enough and if you were good enough to play. And, and it was kind of like, uh, what, it, what would be something to compare it to? Maybe like, I don't know, like like the Sueño MLS type of stuff where like you go to a tryout, you know, they whittle it down to a group of players and then you make it to the next round. I mean, that was kind of how it was, but it was based on region, like where you grew up and where you live. So if you made your local local regional team in your state, you would go to another tryout. And that was like to make a state team. So like a state of Florida team, like all the best players theoretically from the state of Florida would have to pay, go to Coco, Florida, this place called Coco Expo. That place, man. I, I don't know if it's even still around. It might be. But everyone would go there and you would play games. Coaches would watch you and you would you would wear a number like you were kind of running in a marathon. And at the end of it, they'd just call out your number if, if they wanted you to stick around. And that was it. And it was crazy, man. I mean, kids would cry. Kids would be devastated after they uh, after they found out they didn't make it. And that was sad. But I never had that feeling because I made it. I made the state team. And then from the state team... 
they do that in every other state. And then you go and you play in your regional tournament. And I was in Region 3, which was Texas, all the way over to Florida, and then from Florida up to about... God, I don't know where Region 1 start. Uh, maybe North Carolina, maybe Arkansas, and then kind of those states in between, Louisiana, uh, Alabama, all those all those states in between. And then you would go and you'd play all these other state teams. And our state team in Florida, man, we were awesome. I want to brag a little bit here, but we went to that region tournament and we played all these other state teams. You, you're, you're, it's a round rock, it's like a tournament. You know, you get put in a group with other states randomly and you play uh, three games and then the top uh, the the top team in each group. I think there were four different groups of four. The top group, the top team in each group advances, and then you just play a semifinal and a final. And our Florida team, man, we were so good. We uh we ended up winning every group game. We didn't concede, and we won the semifinal and the final. And we didn't concede a goal the entire tournament. It was ridiculous. We were we were really good, and not too many of us made it. <laughs> uh, ironically, uh, Nathan Sturgis, one of my good buddies. He's been on a couple different MLS teams. He's still still in the MLS now, and not too many others. But yeah, those were those were fun times. And then from that state state team thing, they would you know you'd be you'd be picked to stick around for the regional team. And then if you made the regional team, you'd go to this other bigger tournament where you played all the other different regions: region one, two, three, and four. And there will be some some debate about the best regional teams, but uh, I think Region Four with California, they uh, they're the arrogant region, and they like to say they're the best. So, well, I guess I can give it to them. California does produce a lot of good players. So, yeah, that was kind of my process how I started getting involved with the national team, and then I was called up to be a part of the under seventeen national team in Bradenton, Florida, the residency program. I was only there for a year. Uh, I didn't get the chance to play in an under-17 World Cup because that was mainly for even years. If you were born in 1984, 1986, 1988, 1990, and so on, and then the uh, odd-year players, which I am, I'm born in 1987. If you're born in 83, 85, uh, 89, that was for the under-20 World Cup. So the under 17s, even years, under 20s, odd years. Hopefully it's not too confusing, but I never got a chance to play in the under 17 World Cup because I, I didn't make the age group above me. Uh, but I did get a chance to play in the under 20 World Cup, which was an unbelievable experience. But in between that time, I, I went to the University of North Carolina, as you can see with this. Uh, yeah, you're, this, you're wearing this sweater. The, I'm, the sweater I'm, yeah. I'm repping my guys. We have a lot of guys on the Red Bulls that have an affiliation with Duke. And so whenever mm -hmm. I get a chance to wear Carolina gear, I always try to do that. But yeah, I went to UNC for a year and a half. I played two seasons there. I left after my sophomore year to Generation Adidas program. Um, got a contract offer from MLS and I, I told my parents, this is my dream. Uh, you know, I want to follow my dream. And they said, all right, we'll let you do it on one condition if you finish school. And uh, I'm still working on that, mom and dad. So sorry. Will you ever go back? Yeah, yeah, I want to. I want to. I want to finish, and I want to get my degree. Uh, certainly, it's just it's a matter of uh, it's a matter of will. It's a matter of doing it and being able to go back and probably be able to do it online eventually. But anyways, I got drafted by FC Dallas. Um, same draft class as Sasha. Sasha Question. He always gives me crap. He was drafted uh, one pick before me. You were. I was, six. Num I was number six overall. Yeah. I think he was number five to Chivas USA. So uh, he's got that on me. But not much else. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And then, yeah, ever since, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in the places I've been. Dallas, we had a really, we had really good teams. 
I didn't play too much when I was younger. I didn't. I, my first year, I barely played at all, and that was ha- really, really hard for me to take. I mean, being a kid that you know was playing everywhere in college, and then in the set national team, and I was kind of this like arrogant little cocky brat who like you know thought he should have been playing. And when I didn't even make the bench the first game of the season, I mean, I had this like temper tantrum, and I didn't know how to handle it. I was 18 years old, and Oscar Pereja, I still, we still talk about it to this day. Whenever I see him, I mean, after a game, we, a reserve game we played, I mean, I was kind of just like being a little prick on the field. Excuse me. Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Uh, I was being a little brat on the field, man, just pouting all over. And, and we, we lost to a club team, like 3 0, Dallas Texans. They are really very, very good club team, actually. And Oscar Pereja t- took me, took me to the side of the field with the, along with our whole team. And, uh, it was basically just 10 minutes of him just lambasting me and basically just whittling me down to nothing and, and saying, who do you think you are? What, you know, and, and I'll never forget that day because that was a day where I learned what it was like to really be a pro, what it really meant to be a professional athlete. And it's, it's, it's not always rosy. It's not always flowers and rainbows and fairy tales and you, you got to go and pay your dues. Is that and, something uh, you can pass on to young players yeah, these absolutely. days? Absolutely. That was something I did today. <laughs> Yes, it is quite. It's it, it's a very. Um, it is a bit of a new generation now, it right? Is. The spoil. Let me let me say, it's a spoiled generation. I definitely believe that. But when I was that age, man, we didn't have people carrying stuff for us. We were carrying everything ourselves: bags, water coolers, balls, pennies, uh, cones. I mean, you name it. I mean, if you weren't if you weren't carrying something out to practice every single day, you were getting fined, and you didn't have. You know, you didn't have older players who, who let things slide, you know, and, and it's a different generation. You know, these kids, they, they definitely are a little bit more spoiled, but I mean, it's a new, it's a new age of, of, of playing, man, with academies and, you know, I mean, sometimes in, in Dallas, I was lucky because I got drafted right when Pizza Hut Park, it was Pizza Hut Park at the time, Texas Stadium. I don't, I don't, Toyota Stadium, maybe. I'm going to get in trouble for not knowing what that's called now, but, uh, it was Pizza Hut Park at the time. It was just recently built in like 05, I think. And I was lucky. I came and it was like a brand new facility with like um, 25 training fields and like our pitch was always perfect. So that was a little spoiling. But I mean, I remember training with FC Dallas back before I turned pro and they were training at like some ridiculous high school fields and and all kinds of stuff, man. And so these kids with the the academy we have and and the, the training facility we have, we have a turf field and we have two unbelievably nice grass fields that are better than some MLS stadium fields. I mean, it's just a different day and age, man. It's a different day and age. So, anyways, I'm getting off topic a little bit. But Oscar Pereja, yeah, he 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 taught taught me my first really harsh lesson of what what it was like to be a pro, and uh, I'll never forget that. And I thank him for that every time I see him because that that made me grow up and mature. I mean, when you're when you turn pro at a young age, you know it's tough. And I feel for you know some of the kids that that come in and and they don't have someone to you know take them under their wing. So you know, obviously, it's on us. It's incumbent upon the leaders of our team to make sure that kids know how to do things the right way. And it's funny. I was I actually yelled at one of our younger kids today. He's a kid in the academy that's been training with us. Very good player, Mason. Mason D's good kid, man. Really good player. And and he uh, during the runs he was kind of cutting the corners. I said, Mason, you, you haven't earned that right yet, man. Like you you. You're too young to be cutting corners. And I felt kind of bad afterward, but he came up to me and said, Hey, man, thank you. You know, I, I need that type of stuff. And it made me feel pretty good. You know, I don't want to be too hard on these guys, but I also want them to, to, to know. I mean, you got to pay your dues and you have to go through, uh, you know, hardships and, and you got to, you got to suffer. You know, you have to suffer when you're young and you have to learn these things at an early age. 
So I try to do that the right way. Sometimes it doesn't always come off the right way, but uh, that's all part of the process of, of growing and trying to become a better leader. Yeah, and I think probably media and especially social media has a has a, has a part to that. Huge effect. Yeah, just a side note here, Dax is uh, stretching a little bit, I guess, after today's runs. Oh, yeah. The back gets a little tight after those runs. Yeah, exactly. And I was just going to say that some of the, a lot of the young players today, they get so much attention on, on social media and and probably didn't even exist that, you know, just a few years ago. Yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting. It's kind of a it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because, you know, you can as a young player, you can go on social media and you can see, "Oh, what are people saying about me?" and, you know, are they talking, you know, good things about me, bad things about me, whatever. Um and it's tough as a young player to not look at that stuff. Um but again, it, it's a double-edged sword because we start anointing the next uh, Leo Messi, you know, and, and we're so desperate, I think, in this country for that once in a generation type of player, um, that sometimes it's hard on kids and it, it doesn't ever, it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't work out how people think it will. And that's why it's so important that, you know, these kids are brought up in good academies and have good coaches that keep their head on the ground and keep them level headed and humble and, and, bring them along the right way because there's so many players who have gone overseas and, you know, been hailed as like the next big thing coming out of the U.S. and it just doesn't work out for them. And it's it's not necessarily their fault. You know, it's kind of just we're a victim of our society. And unfortunately, you know, that's the way it's going to be, you know. Yeah. So you just hope that uh, that as MLS gets bigger and as coaches get better and as, uh, you know, teams get better, you know, the young players continue to, uh, to grow and, and are brought along the right way. Because I think as the U.S., I mean, we're, we're close. I think we're really close to, to really breaking through and, and, you know, producing kids that are, you know, 11, 12 years old and five, six years from now, you're going to start seeing more, more kids be snapped up by big clubs. And that's something that's important. It's important for our growth as a country and it's important for our aspir, <clears throat> excuse me, our aspirations to try to win a World Cup one day. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. You touched on it a little bit in the beginning. I just want to ask you about you were traded uh, a couple of times. Uh, obviously, it is because the system in the MLS, it just works that way. And, and you as a player don't really have that much control over it. Yep. And also, it's something that affects homegrown players. It doesn't really affect DPs, obviously. Of course. I mean, how, how do you deal with that? Well, it's not easy. Um, it's not easy at all to to hear that you've been traded or to be to hear that you've been cut or released and told that you're not good enough or what they don't come out and say you're not good enough but it's essentially what they are saying it's it's not easy for a young player and that's why they need really good support systems and that's why they need you know people around them to give them confidence and say listen it's not always going to work out the way that you think it will i mean i remember i i remember in 2010 I had just finished my fifth year in Dallas. We had lost MLS Cup final in overtime to Colorado. And that was like one of the most, that was one of the toughest things that I ever went through in my career. And then literally 
a day later finding out that I wasn't being protected in the expansion draft because Portland was coming in. Uh, I think it was it just Portland or Portland or Montreal. I'm not really sure. I know Portland was involved. And so that, I mean, for me, that was so hard to take because I felt like I had established myself. I felt like I had a home in Dallas. I felt like, I mean, that 2010 FC Dallas team was one of the best teams I ever played on. And it was one of the closest groups of guys I ever played on along with our team in New York last year. I mean, we were like a family, man, and we just had the best time together, and, and it showed on the field. I mean, we were one of the best teams in the league, I think. And it was unfortunate we didn't cap that off with a victory in MLS Cup, but just knowing that I wasn't going to be protected, I wasn't dumb. You know, I had an idea that, that you know, Team Portland would be interested in taking me in the expansion draft. I wasn't sure how it was going to play out. It ended up happening where DC had worked out a deal with Portland before the expansion draft to take me and then trade me to DC for Rodney Wallace. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's something that you just, you can't prepare for. I mean, players, I, I was kind of lucky in the sense that I knew beforehand. I had talked to DC United and Ben Olsen and, you know, they had been like, are you okay with this? And, and do you want to come here? And I said, sure, absolutely. I mean, this team was such a big tradition. Um, and I had a ton of, still do have a ton of respect for Ben Olsen and his career, what he's been able to accomplish. But it was, it was really hard at first because, you know, I, I thought, crap, I mean, I, I was in Dallas five years, which is a long enough, a long time anyways for a player because longevity is, is tough nowadays in MLS. But I mean, I was thinking, man, maybe I could be one of those one, one team career guys, you know, and, and Dallas could have been the place where I was my whole career. But you have disagreements with coaches. You don't see eye to eye with people. You know, you lose form, you make too much money, a young kid comes in and does well, and, and he's cheaper, so that makes you expendable. It's so many different things that go into it. It's just, uh, it's tough to explain. And But look, as professional athletes, I don't want to paint us as like the victim here. I mean, we do what we do for a reason, and we know full well going into it that there are going to be some hardships and, and difficult moments. But I won't say it's not tough on players. I mean, it's really tough on players, especially older established veteran players who have families and kids in school to be told we love you you've been great for our team but we're trading you to the other the opposite side of the u.s where you got to uproot your kids and your family or potentially leave your family there and you have to live away from them for however long that may be i mean it's not easy but look this is the system we're in and and you know it's only I think we're starting to chip away at the system a little bit. I mean, you don't want to say too many negative things about it because it's worked and the MLS is, is thriving. But at the same time, you know, the players, you know, we're, we're constantly fighting for greater rights and, and, you know, more things in the CBA. And, you know, we got free, a uh, small form of free agency in this, this last CBA. But, you know, there were, there were quite a few guys that still thought, uh, you know, we could have done better. Um, but at the end of the day, that's, that's it. That's a discussion for later, but until uh, until guys, you know, have uh, full security with the contracts that they sign, I mean, it's always going to be the case where guys are going to be di- disappointed and they're going to be uprooted. But look, like I said, this is the you know you you play the game because it's the game you love and and you get paid to do it. You know, this comes along with the territory, and it's just something that kind of has to be accept <clears throat> accepted. I want to touch just briefly on the national team. Sure, you've played. Five caps since 2009, all of them under Bob Bradley. After that, Will Klinsman obviously not picked even once. A lot of people in the media and uh, in the in the industry think that you should be at least uh, given the opportunity. How does that make you feel? Yeah, it's a it's a tough question to answer. You know, you want to be you want to be candid and honest, but you also don't want to you know 
say things that you know kind of hurt your chances in the in the future so what i'll say about it is is that it's uh it's an honor to represent your national team and i've done it five times like you said and the pride that you feel putting on the jersey and, and wearing the crest is something that is hard to explain i mean it's something not many players get to say a chance to say they they do and what i'll say about it is that at the end of the day, it comes down to an opinion. Mm-hmm. And this is not just, you know, the national team or Jurgen Quinsman. This is all professional sports. You're at the mercy of essentially one man's opinion and whether he rates you or whether he doesn't rate you. And it doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't make it right. It just is what it is. I mean, this is the world we live in. And so for for whatever reason, Jurgen has, has others rated ahead of me. And that's something I've accepted. And that's something that... Um, Do you think about it? Do you have any like set goal that you are going to well, get sure. back in? Yeah. I mean, look, there, I don't play the game to, to not get called up to the national team. I mean, that's certainly a goal of mine, but I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I can only, you know, as a player, you can only control so much. And it is frustrating, but at the same time, I don't think Jurgen calls up players and says, I'm calling this guy up because I hope he's going to help us contribute to a loss. I mean, Jurgen is calling up players that he thinks are going to help the national team win, and that's totally fair. Now, am I frustrated that I haven't gotten more of a chance? Sure, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of guys that can say that. There's a lot of guys that can say the same thing. We're grown men. You know, these are things that you have to take. What I will say is that it's motivation. It's motivation to do well, and I had a really good year personally, and we had a great year as a team with the Red Bulls in 2015. And it didn't get me a call up. So that means that I have to work harder. That means I have to play better. That means that I have to do that much more to convince Jurgen that I'm a guy that can help the team. And if he doesn't see it that way, then that's his opinion. And I respect his opinion 100%. As it relates to uh, fans, you've been around the league for, for a little bit, obviously playing for three different teams. What are the main differences, if any, between, you know, different fan groups and, and different teams? Yeah. Um, I would say that the only differences between fan groups are just kind of based on, you know, where they grew up and, and the type of place, the type of environment that they're in. When I played for FC Dallas, it was uh their the supporters groups there were a little bit smaller, um, and I think they've certainly improved since I've left. Um, but they were they were a little bit more family oriented. And I think that especially in Dallas and where we were playing in particular in Frisco it was more catered to a family atmosphere, making sure that kids, you know, were there and felt safe and, and, and all that. But I think it's changing for them a little bit now, as opposed to being in New York city, you know, where you have kind of that, that hardcore New Yorker vibe, um, tons of pride for the city, tons of, of pride for, uh, you know, supporting your team. I mean, Dallas certainly had that. Don't get me wrong, but it's just different, you know, and, and there's certainly things that, uh, that, that, Fan groups do differently. Different chants is the obvious one. Um, I think the one thing that all fans have in common uh, is the love of the crest and the love of the team. The players change every year, but the crest stays doesn't necessarily always stay the same, but the team stays the same. The team is never going away. You know, that's always going to be there. It's an institution that will, will never go away, and, and fans can always hang their hat on that. You know, players will come and go, but their support for the team, it will always be there uh, through thick and thin. At least you'd hope so <laughs> for yes. most teams. I mean, I know our Red Bull fans have suffered for 20 years without an MLS Cup, and they stick by us through thick and thin. And so 
their toughness and, and their resilience. It's very similar to, to New York and, uh, and to New Jersey because a lot of our fans are from Jersey. So it's just that, uh, that, that tough kind of New York vibe and, uh, the players feel that and the players respect that. So certain fan groups always different. I can't really, you know, in DC, you know, the fans were really good to me. Uh, they traded me nice, but I really wasn't there long enough to, to be able to form an exact opinion on them. And so, they're passionate, you know. They uh, they they've won. DC has been uh, really has a rich history of winning, and and so they uh, expect, you know, excellence, and they expect a high level, and that's fine. That's totally fair. And I think, you know, with each passing season, each fan base has like a little bit more optimism. Could this be the year? You know, could this be the year we win and get over the hump? And they need that. Every team needs that. Um. So for me, you know, for our fans, I mean. What I will say is, is that we're like a family. We try to do things the right way on the field, and we hope that they support us off the field. And we hope that they, they feel a part of the club because a soccer club is so much more than just the players on the field. It's just, it's, it's, I can't reiterate that enough. It's so much more than that. It's, it's the people who, you know, make the food. It's the people who clean the stadium. It's the people who work in the front office busting their ass to sell tickets every single day. Uh, so the, best stadium in MLS, Red Bull Arena, can be full for us. And so it's 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 certainly about the fans. Uh and that's uh that's something that's unique from a player's perspective is that you don't uh you don't have many relationships like that with many people, you know, throughout your lifetime. And so the fan player relationship is cool. It's very cool and it's something that I think uh Red Bulls fans certainly respect and, and they have uh their passion is unmatched. I mean uh, obviously you have the Pacific Northwest doing some big things. You know, you have to respect what Orlando City's doing. You know, but I think with everything that the Metro Stars and the Red Bulls have been through, all the hardships, I mean, that's made our fans that much more resilient and that much stronger. And you can see that in the way that they support us. As an American homegrown player, what are the the differences in the locker room and in training versus foreign guys in terms of skills tactics uh, any superstitions any any types of routines well every every locker room is different i mean that's the one thing that's uh that's the beauty of playing on different teams and, and having different cultures around every locker room is different and unique um i would say that the locker room culture is is sacred and it's one that players take a lot of pride in and it's certainly something that you need to respect and i think the main thing is you need to have respect for each other at all times i mean this is not an environment where your ego can come in and certainly as professional athletes you have egos and you have you have guys that get pissed off at times but as long as you have respect for each other i think you're going to have a good locker room so you want to try to make it as much of a family atmosphere as possible even though it's tough um but you have guys coming from different countries you have guys that have different beliefs um you have guys that uh, are different races different religions uh all kinds of things that go into a locker room and and these are things that everyone has to respect and the beauty of of a locker room is that you know, it's it's such a fun place to be in, especially if you're winning and especially if, you know, you have a good dynamic among the team. And so there are differences in every locker room. I mean, my 2010 FC Dallas team, the one that went to MLS Cup, that was such a fun locker room to be a part of because, uh, you know, guys not only got along on the field, but off the field. I mean, guys wanted to hang out and, and have barbecues together and, and, you know, go to each other's houses and see movies and all kinds of awesome stuff. And then our locker room in in New York last year was just, I mean, as close to perfect as it can be. I mean, you have guys that genuinely care about each other and want to be around each other and, and, uh, have fun together. And, and not all locker rooms are like that. And, uh, that's the thing is if, if, if you have a divided locker room or a broken locker room, it can totally divide a team. 
Um, and I can't say I've ever been a part of one. Certainly been a part of locker rooms where there's been frustration and, and certain guys have sp- spoken their minds. And, you know, those are all things that come with it, that come with the territory. But certainly a very interesting dynamic and an interesting, you know, part First to be a part of. Here for New York. This one skied and it's in. Red Bulls got one. One nothing New York. A brilliant setup from Kleshton. It's the captain, Dax McCarty, who's given New York a one. We're getting towards the end here, so I'm just going to shoot a set of uh, rapid fire questions. Cool. The biggest moment in your career? Biggest moment in my career. Winning the first Supporter Shield and piece of tro- silverware in New York Red Bulls history back in 2013, and being captain for the full national team. Best player you've played with? Thierry Henry. Not even close. Best player you've played against? Best player I've played against. That's a tough one. Luis Suarez. The toughest opponent that you've had? I will say the toughest opponent. There's a lot of guys that, that come to mind on this list, but personally as a center midfielder, the best, one of my favorite players to watch and the toughest to play against was Shalry Joseph for New England. The craziest player you've played with, and it can be in a, in a in a funny way or in a pure crazy way. Craziest player I've played with. I need to be careful who I say here, don't I? I will say Breck Shea, but in a funny way. The most stylish guy on your team. Ah, the most stylish guy on our team. Uh, Lloyd Sam would want me to say him, but it's definitely not him. Uh, it's Bradley Wright Phillips. Whose fashion sense on your team would you not want? Uh, sorry, Carl. It's Carl we met, Canadian guy. He's still, he's a young guy though, he'll learn. Your favorite team? My favorite team is Manchester United. Stick with them through thick and thin. I fell in love with them because of Paul Scholes, I'll be honest. Do you watch yourself on YouTube? No. You get to pick three people in the soccer world, past or present. Let's assume that uh, language is not a barrier. Okay. You get to take them for dinner. Who are those three and where would you take them? Zinedine Zidane, uh, Leo Messi, and Paul Scholes. And I will take them to uh, probably my my favorite restaurant in uh, in New York, in West Village, Barbudo. How can uh, people follow you or find out more about you? I'm pretty active on social media, Twitter, Instagram. What's uh, your handle? Not too active on Facebook. On Instagram, I believe it's just at Dax McCarty, my name. And then I think on Twitter, it's at Dax McCarty 11, I believe. Uh, could be wrong, but quick search should be, should be simple enough. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? If you, uh, if you like ping pong and you like good vibes, you can go to my favorite place in the city, uh, Spin NYC in the Flatiron district district. It's a great time. You'll never see more ping pong balls anywhere else. Who do you think I should interview on this pod? <sighs> Who do I think you should interview? Uh, I think that you should interview... Hmm. That's a good question. I would interview Steve Nash. Really, really good guy. Friends with Jeff Mateo. Um, and a, a huge soccer fan. Huge soccer fan. So, I would interview him if you get the chance. Fantastic. I'll definitely I'll definitely try. Dax, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I know it's a very busy time of year. I truly appreciate it. Uh, best of luck on the on the season. And hopefully, you know, it'll be... 
even better than than this past season. We hope so, man. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app. Please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at Sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. It's at coffeesfootball. Check out the coffeeandfootball.com website. There you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest. This show also lives on SoundCloud and Acast. Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week's episode. It'll go up on Monday or Tuesday. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.